Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Sharon Steitler. Though you can call her Bird Chick, it's not only okay with her, probably, but she might even insist. As her alias may suggest, Steitler wears multiple hats tied loosely or directly to birding, including blogging about birding, photographing birds, particularly digiscoping, which we'll define and discuss a bit later in the program. And she's written a number of books, among them, A Thousand and One Secrets Every Birder Should Know. For more than 20 years, her mantra has been, quote, I have successfully made it my goal to get paid to go birding, unquote. Toward that end, Steidler travels extensively, toiling in various capacities, including field trip leader, birding consultant, keynote speaker, and bird field technician, among others. When not globetrotting, she serves as a park ranger at the Mississippi National River and Recreation Area in St. Paul, Minnesota. We'll hear about various aspects of birding and various aspects of the bird chick when I speak with Sharon Steidler in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. A programming note, I'll be doing a music show later today when I sit in for Scott Elliott on the All Souls edition of It's the Music, 2 to 4 p.m. this afternoon on WMNF. Later in this show, I'll speak with Carol Baskin, CEO of Big Cat Rescue, the Tampa sanctuary that rescues and houses to tigers, lions, leopards, and other exotic cats. Last week, there was an incident at Big Cat Rescue in which a longtime volunteer was seriously injured by a tiger. So we'll briefly discuss that with Baskin. But something also happened last week that's positive and momentous, really. The Big Cat Public Safety Act, which Baskin has worked on for years, as have others, passed the House. So we'll discuss that bill with her, what it means, and what happens next. Right now, though, let's talk birding with the bird chick with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Sharon Steitler on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. You bet. Thanks for joining us. So let's start at what, for our purposes today at least, looks like the beginning. It appears the, the birding bug bit you early. How old were you when you first became really interested in birds? I was about seven years old, and my oldest sister had just moved out of the house and into her own home, and someone gave her uh, a field guide as a housewarming present, and I pretty much took it over. <laughs> oh, I see. And I was fascinated, you know, depending on what part of the country you're from, you can pronounce it pileated or pileated woodpecker, and uh, I just loved the idea that there was a crow-sized woodpecker out there, and I just snapped and then wanted to see all the other birds. Wow. So that is kind of on the precocious side, at least uh, I haven't uh, talked a ton of birders. I'm trying to kind of shore up that gap here on the show. But but most people, I'd say, did not start anywhere near seven years old. You know, when you talk to people my age, that is unusual. Uh, but I would say it's very different now. There are quite a few young birders. And I, I think it's been a shift over the years of there being more TV shows about animals uh, and and, you know, you can you can watch the crocodile hunter, but you may not get to see the animals he's seeing. But if you have a backyard, 
you have birds. And each state has their own host of, of wonderful species. I mean, the birds you get down in Florida are very different than the birds that I get up in Minnesota. So it's, it can be a good time no matter where you are. And in some ways, isn't that kind of part of the very appeal of birding is what you just said about where you are versus where we are and the kind of different birds so that that's why people take trips and pursue birding on all kinds of different levels and, and including globetrotting levels, I guess, just because then they can see birds they could otherwise never have seen where they live yeah the way i like to describe it is it's it's like a treasure hunt only the treasure moves and sometimes changes color and i mean you you can globe trot but there is a lot to discover just in your own backyard uh you know up until recently i did travel quite a bit for birding but i've had a great time being stuck at home and just really getting into uh the deep dive of feeding and attracting birds in my backyard not only with seeds that you can buy, but even with the plants that you can put out. I'd, I'd much rather have flowers outside for hummingbirds because you never have to clean those like you do a hummingbird feeder. <laughs> I see. So it sounds like the pandemic has kind of forced your hand and changed kind of the way you've done your life and done your birding life in particular, the way so many other people's lives have been obviously hampered and limited and curtailed by the pandemic. Is that is that kind of what, what has given you in some ways a new appreciation for all the, the birds and plants that you can just find in your own backyard? It is. It is. And, you know, you can really get to watch behavior. And that's been fun for me to watch on social media. Uh, I run a couple of birding pages and just the sheer number of new birders we've had come in has been fascinating. But people watching common birds and discovering new behavior. Uh, somebody posted a picture of a cardinal the other day and it was carving into uh, the bark of a branch and getting sap out of it. And it's like, why well, didn't know cardinals would do that? I knew they had a sharp beak, and I knew that they would sip from sap sucker wells. So it does kind of give people who are even old hat at birding a chance to just really study behaviors that we don't normally get to study. Yeah, and you know, as I was mentioning the pandemic, or, or you were sort of alluding to it first, obviously, I've seen and read uh, quite a few times now over the last few months that one of the byproducts of the pandemic lockdown is a slew of new birders just because again they're they're in their houses and, and maybe initially it was a forced appreciation of what's uh, just outside their door or they're in their patio or whatever but it sounds like that's really expanded the number of birders just inherently and for me i see this as one of the the positives of the pandemic for several reasons so let's say you know we have all these thousands of new birders and sure once this is over they may not stick with bird watching but something that they may do is they may remember back to that. It's like, oh, I really enjoyed seeing that eastern bluebird that showed up in my backyard. And I read that they like choke cherry trees. The next time I need to plant a tree, I'm going to plant a choke cherry. And so the more that we can get native plants in our backyard, that does far more for bird conservation than anything else. And it's just something simple. And the more of us that do that, birds will benefit over time. Hmm. That's an interesting byproduct of the byproduct, in a sense, then. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if you're familiar with Cornell Lab of Ornithology, but they offer tremendous resources for free. Uh, one of them is the Merlin Bird ID app, which will help you identify birds by either asking questions or try to identify your photos. But they also have uh, a component of that called eBird, where you can report what you see, even if it's in your backyard. And they put out a report of how many new eBird users that they have and the crazy amount of data that we're getting about bird distribution that we haven't had before. So 
there's also people who are getting into this who are contributing to valuable science for birds. So I've just, I'm, that's the one thing I'm, I'm super excited about in the pandemic. Yeah. Well, let me go backwards just briefly because as we're talking here, I, I'm sort of thinking about your story about taking over the, the thing that wasn't really intended for you when you were seven and going like, hey, this is really cool. I, I want this. So in a sense, that guy, you sort of hooked it at seven. But what can you trace a little bit of an evolution of how your birding love kind of unfolded from there? You know, I was really fortunate that my mom, who didn't know very much about birds, but realized this was an educational thing for her kid. You know, she just rallied the family. It was like anything you're going to get Sharon for Christmas or her birthday, get her a bird book or. And so Mm. people started, you know, and I had I had. These records that uh, would were the early things to help you identify bird songs, and then I did get away from it a little bit as a teenager. But then when I was in college, uh, I got back into it in a big way. And I remember uh, I had just broken up with someone who, funny enough, he had a bird phobia. But I was, was looking <laughs> well, that would never do, really, would it? Yeah, that relationship was doomed from the start. Yeah, but. Um, there was a new guy that I wanted to date and I was walking with him across campus and I'm like, what am I going to talk to this guy about? He's so hot. What is it? And a bird flew in front of me. And before I could help myself, I was like, Oh my gosh, it's a rubicided toey. And he said, what did you say? And I, I said, Oh, don't, don't worry about what I just said. And he's like, no, seriously, what was that? And I said, well, a bird flew in front of us and I haven't seen one for a long time. And I, I know what it is. I, I just, it's called a toey. And he's like, that is so cool. Wow. Well, I can tell you a whole bunch of other birds, too. And then we ended up having a very successful date. But it was after that that I realized how how much I loved birds. And I also remember uh, one day walking across campus and watching Canada geese fly over. And they weren't common back then. This was like before the reintroduction had really taken hold. Mm. And and just like feeling this call of like, I want to go where those birds are going. I want to see what they see. I And then it was pretty much after that, uh, I I started doing whatever I could to do as much birding as possible. And uh, <laughs> I was actually trained to be an actor. And I remember one night being in a show and thinking, I really don't enjoy acting very much. I, I think I need to follow this bird passion more. And then the next thing I know, I had a job at a wild bird store. Wow. Well, this is, uh, I mean, at least with the highlights we've heard, this is was pretty much destined from seven. But each step of the way, whether it's just that, that pivotal uh, date where you were kind of wowing the, the guy with the, your knowledge and then saying, hey, you know, I'm studying acting, don't really love it as much as I probably should, and I uh, really love birds, and then, you know, gainfully employed, it sounds like shortly thereafter. Yeah, and, and I will say that my my theater background, you know, we, there was acting, there was also a lot of writing, and that certainly has contributed to me. Uh, I now work as an interpreter for the National Park Service. And so, I mean, that that has helped me, but a lot of people are like, oh, well, you must be an ornithologist. And I was like, I do not have a master's degree in biology with an emphasis on birds. So no, I am technically not an ornithologist. And what is, what is uh, in your role as interpreter, what is that, what is that involved uh, doing exactly? Uh, I'm really fortunate at my, my part because we're on the Mississippi River, which is a major migratory corridor. Yeah. And uh, I now what I do mostly is I design uh, large-scale public programs. And most of them are birding. I do some other stuff. Uh, like I, I do some, uh, one called the Park After Dark where we try to attract in moths. 
but um, I lead kayak paddles to a heron rookery, and we get to explore the heron island. Uh, I have a program I've been doing a lot virtually called Bald Eagle in a Box, and it's uh, basically all the things that we've learned about bald eagles uh, in my park corridor and all the fun and weird things that we've found in their nest. <laughs> oh, I, I got to ask, like, give me an example or two of a fun or weird thing you found in a bald eagle's nest. Well, one of my favorite things is a little stuffed bison, which is a park ranger. You know, we love the bison. And what's amazing about it is it was probably some kid's toy that got tossed and a bald eagle saw it and was like, well, this is small and brown. And it was back at the nest and the chicks uh, have chewed off all the parts that were leather, the plastic leather stuff. So the hooves are gone, the horns are gone, the nose is chewed on, but everything else is still intact. So I just love imagining this young bald eagle trying to peck at this, and it's like, this doesn't taste good at all. Yeah, uh, but it is cuddly, I guess, is probably the other other thought they might have had. Yeah, and I mean, it's also interesting. We've found uh, several different types of turtle species. So I have uh, a young snapping turtle shell. Um, there's uh, quite a few soft-shell turtle pieces in there. And then there's also things that I, I like to remind people about how we have an impact, quite a few uh, pieces of fishing equipment. And that can cause problems in bald eagle nests. Oh, yeah. Well, that sounds really educational. And it does sound, as you've kind of uh, outlined some of these things, that your acting-slash-performing background is actually, you know, kind of probably serving you well. I hope so. I hope so. And if... if if, you know, people don't have to get into birds like I do, but if they care about them enough to, to put in one native plant in their backyard or uh, donate to some conservation organization, then then I've, I've reached my goal. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, let me let folks know this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Sharon Steitler, who's so steeped in the birding world as a blogger, photographer, author of A Thousand and One Secrets Every Birder Should Know, and more, that she's also known as Bird Chick. If you'd like to ask Sharon a question about birding or a specific bird or offer a comment otherwise, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0888. Eight five. So you don't have to know too much about you to know that your mantra of sorts has been, uh, since 1997, I have successfully made it my goal to get paid to go birding. First, I'm wondering why 1997? What made that the pivotal year? Uh, that was the year that I was in a show and I was standing backstage and thinking, I don't like acting anymore. Okay, so that's where you had the epiphany <laughs> like, hey, no more drama, acting, all birding if I yeah. can if I can make it happen. Yeah, and uh, I I went in and there was a wild bird store uh, at the Mall of America that had a part time job. And as I was doing the interview, the woman said, "I'm probably shooting myself in the foot to be a good employee, but we actually have a full time assistant manager position available at another store. You should apply for that." And and it was great because uh, I was young and eager and full of creative ideas. They gave me the newsletter to first I wrote for it, and then I became the editor. And then they said, oh, why don't you try to organize day trips for our customers? So I really, wow. I really, they gave me a lot of freedom to, to pursue my passion. And I never really thought of myself as working at a bird store. I always uh, told myself I worked at a nature center that happened to sell bird seed. Because we would yeah. answer people's questions about birds and we'd have bird feeders outside. So that's, that's the way I, I saw that job. Right. But it, but it also sounds like it's sort of, there's been a real ongoing intersection of your passion for birding and sort of a, um, 
entrepreneurial, I'm game for it spirit that has really kind of propelled you along? I've been very, very fortunate in the people that I've been able to work with and uh, just, just the way life has panned out. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that I don't stop and feel grateful for what I have and what I'm able to enjoy. And, and one of the things that I love about birding, especially if you choose to travel, is that it takes you off the beaten path. Mm. And, uh, you know, Austria is, is actually quite a spot for birding. And there are people that will tell you museums and things you should see. But I distinctly remember one day uh, standing next to a castle with a couple of other birders, and we're scanning this castle looking for this thing called a wall creeper. And it's like a silver nuthatch with pink wings. And I, it's just, you know, people will tell me, what, oh, it's like, well, did you do this in Vienna? I was like, no, but I did get the wall creeper in Bergen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, I got the wall creeper. That's uh, kind of, yeah, for, for your purposes, that's that's what defined probably your trip to Austria. It did. And, and that was a crazy day, too, because I was there with someone from Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Mm. And he said, you know, if we rent a car, we could we could drive over the border into Liechtenstein and be the top e-birders there because no one ever reports any lists. And so we did. We drove into Liechtenstein. We only saw 10 birds because it's not that big of a principality. And so... It, it does open you up to really weird adventures just, you know, as you're trying to see a bird that maybe you haven't seen before. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's, we've got some emailers and we've got a call or two that we want to get involved. So let's, in fact, let's get the, the call involved right now. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Sharon Styler, the bird chick. Hello. Hi, go ahead, please. It's you. Oh, Okay. Um, I was just wondering, I moved out here from uh, California last year, and I love hummingbirds, and I'm in Pinellas County, and um, I have never seen a hummingbird here, and I'm so sad. Do they come here, or um, <laughs> do you know? <laughs> uh, well, you definitely should have some hummingbirds in Florida. Uh, I'm not as up to the migratory route that happens there, uh, but in the eastern region, you should definitely be getting ruby-throated hummingbirds, mm. and... So maybe you'll see them uh, when they come back in the spring. Uh, and, you know, you can have a hummingbird feeder out, and the popular nectar recipe is four parts water to one part sugar. But the more that you can offer plant-wise, especially nectar-rich plants, uh, that really gets them to your to your yard. That gets their attention. Yes, that's what I had in California. I, I've never used a hummingbird feeder, but I had hummingbirds. And so, well, I'm on the West Coast here in Florida, so I haven't seen any, so I don't know. Um, I have some plants with me, <laughs> so we'll see if they come around. Well, you're coming, too, from a bit of an unfair situation. I mean, in California, you get more species of hummingbirds than you do in Florida. Uh, Florida, you're mostly just going to get the ruby-throated hummingbirds. You might get some rufous hummingbirds in the wintertime. So what month did you move there? Um, I moved here last January, so it'll almost be a year since I've been here. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you should you should see some uh, along the West Coast. Uh, I would I would watch them around late March, early April. Okay. Uh, and 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 yeah, just make sure you have your nectar rich flowers uh, going, um, and and you should get them there. And then I don't know what you do with compost, but I get hummingbirds coming to my compost piles. <laughs> huh. <laughs> they like the fruit flies. Oh, I never knew that. (laughs) All right, so it sounds like you have some great, great tips for hummingbird action. Thank you. Thanks for your call. 
Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Sharon Styler, the bird chick. Hello. Hello. Yeah, tell the lady that just called you might see the more hummingbirds in the Brooksville area. Okay. All right, that's a good tip. And uh, actually, you know what? I think we may have uh, briefly lost uh, Sharon when we lost that other okay. caller simultaneously. Hold, 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 I'm going to ask you to you, hold. You can broadcast it, though. Okay. okay. Cool. Bye-bye. Okay. Okay, that's good. That's good. Sorry about that. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but uh, we do have some other folks that I think are uh, hoping to speak with you, and uh, so let's put one of those on the air. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Sharon Styler, the bird chick. No, this is Al. Okay. Did you have anything you wanted to offer or, or comment on? Yeah. Um, a fire spike plant attracts hummingbirds like crazy. Oh, okay. <clears throat> I've got them in my yard front and back. And it's the only thing they seem to go to, but it attracts them like crazy. <laughs> okay, well, that's when a... It's when it's flowering, you know. Okay, that sounds like a great tip. Often. Thank I you. I hear the name of the plant. What was that plant? Fire spike. Ah, okay, good. They're good. easy to grow, and they're easy to propagate, and they're beautiful. It's got a long, red, uh, you know, group of flowers. And they come around mostly late summer and er and early fall. Or I would say late summer through the fall. That's when they come here. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, where, where I live, uh, much further north, yeah, it's cardinal flower and uh, salvias work great at, in my yard. So, but no, getting some good Florida tips—that's that's that's excellent. And again, the upside to flowers is you don't have to clean them like you clean a hummingbird feeder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's great. All right. Well, thanks for that hot tip. That's great. Appreciate it. Thank you so You're much. You're welcome. Thank okay. you. Bye bye. Okay, so Sharon, let's uh, we're going to get a couple more callers involved, but also let's get a couple of the emails appropriated uh, here too. This one says, "I'm originally from St. Paul, Minnesota. is a beautiful state. My niece lives on Browns Bay, off of Lake Minnetonka, and sends me pictures of birds on the lake all the time. She says she saw a pelican once. Where would it have come from? There are tons of lakes in Minnesota, but no salt water." You know, that, that is a great question. And when I first moved to Minnesota, I, I saw pelicans and I wondered what the heck was going on. But we actually have quite the breeding population here. They There's a big colony of them on Lackey Parle out in western Minnesota. And then Pelican Rapids, <laughs> there are pelicans too. Uh, and, and, yeah, they're different than the, the brown pelicans. You know, they don't do the spectacular dive. Uh, but they do school, they herd schools of fish together and, and dip their heads in and get them. And so lakes are fantastic for pelicans. But I banded young pelicans for a couple of years. And it was interesting, the pelicans that breed here in Minnesota uh, clearly spend the winter in salt water. They migrate down ice into the Gulf. But when we would recover bands on older pelicans, sometimes their bands would be so worn away from all the time that they spent in salt water, you almost couldn't read the number. Wow. Uh, okay, so let's see. Here's another one here. It says, I have some grouse and cardinals that live in the bush in my front yard. What type of bird seed or things can I put uh, out for them to eat? Oh, man, you are lucky if you have grouse. Um, it, it depends on, on which grouse species. In general, most birds lined uh, black oil sunflower seed. That is hands down the, the number one seed, and especially cardinals like that. You can also put out safflower. For grouse, you can get away with some of the more economical seeds. Uh, they'll go for sorghum. Uh, depending on the grouse species, they'll also go for milo. 
But when in doubt, black oil sunflower seed is the way to go. Okay, cool. Let's take uh, one more here and then get back to some of my uh, own questions. Uh, there are most definitely hummingbirds in South Central St. Petersburg and also across the Skyway in Manatee County. So that's Randy is a contribution there. So thank you, Randy. So back to when we were talking about kind of that the mantra from 1997 when you had that uh, epiphany saying, hey, I'm not doing drama anymore. I'm doing birding by hook or by crook. And then you really have ever since. So I guess some of my questions probably reflect uh, the viewpoint of a non-birder. But I'm just wondering, does every birding activity you undertake enhance you as a birder? In other words, is it linear in that way? Or are some activities kind of more meaningful or have more impact than others, over, especially over the course of that many years? Wow, I, uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, you, you, there's over 10,000 species of birds in the world. So you always have something to learn. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are people who've dedicated their lives to peregrine falcons or bald eagles, and they, they still will find things that they learned that they that was fascinating. Um, and, and, I mean, it just, there's no, there isn't necessarily a wrong way to watch birds unless you're doing something that harms them in a negative way. Uh, you know, if, if all you care about is just your backyard birds and that's all you want to do, that's, that's fine. Uh, but if you're someone that, you know, and you really want to go out and try and see as many birds as possible, that's fine too. But let's make sure that when you're trying to see that many birds, you're not doing something like walking through habitat where you might step on their nest or, um, playing calls to get their attention and the bird gets so distracted that paying more attention to uh, a playback of its own call than taking care of the birds in its nest. Mm. Um, There's there's a club called the American Birding Association, and they produce something called the ABA Code of Ethics. And it's a really great resource to to make sure that what you're doing as you watch birds is having the least amount of impact on birds. Gotcha. That sounds really uh, helpful uh, and valuable. This is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and I'm speaking with Sharon Steiler, a veteran multifaceted birding expert who's also known as Bird Chick. And by the way, her website, not surprisingly, is birdchick.com and all kinds of information about things she does, things she's done, uh, blogging, photos, other things, some of which we've touched on here and well before we're done, some of which we probably won't have time to get to them all. But either way, in the meantime, we invite you to join the conversation we're having now by calling 813 239 9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. So one thing I mentioned in the introduction, or at the top of the show really, I guess, is uh, digiscoping. And I, I gather you're an avid digiscoping uh, devotee. So can you kind of explain what digiscoping is, first of all, and, and how it works? Yeah, so essentially it's using a digital camera with your binoculars or spotting scope to take pictures and videos of birds. And it originally started with uh, a way for birders to document a rare bird uh, by using a point-and-shoot camera. And it's evolved to you can purchase adapters for a fancy single-lens reflex camera. But I would say the most popular way to do it now is by using uh, a smartphone. And you can buy cases. Uh, I have a case from a company called PhoneScope. 
and uh, it attaches to your phone, and then you're, it lets you attach your phone to your spotting scope to take pictures and video. So that's just a, a better way or a more precise way to get great photos when you're out birding because you have the scope helping you, and then whatever camera, even if it's just your phone, is actually recording yeah, the, the, yeah. the images. Yeah. If you go to my website, um, the homepage, there's this background photo of these cranes and fog. And when that when I took that picture, I originally was doing a lot with a single-lens reflex camera. And that particular day, I was in Israel looking at common cranes. They have a huge crane migration there. And I was in the back of a tractor, and, you know, it was early light. I was getting terrible photos. And I had just gotten my first iPhone. And I thought, I wonder what would happen if, if I took a picture. So I took, like, a landscape shot, and then I held up the iPhone to the spotting scope, and I got that picture. And I thought, well, why am I bothering with a fancy camera that's <laughs> in my pocket and can get just as good a photo? Oh, wow. And, yeah. So, I mean, you know, so much of photography is based on what the light is doing. Sure. But... Uh, it, it's crazy the type of photos and videos you can get with a smartphone. Oh, that's really cool. That's good to know. Let's take another uh, caller. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Sharon Steiler, Bird Chick. Morning. How are Hi. you? Good. How are you? Pretty good. Um, tell the young lady that uh, wonderful talk. Um, yeah, you're speaking to her directly yourself, actually. So. Yes, um, I'm in Tampa, and yes, we do have the ruby-throated and the rufous, and also we get some of the hummingbirds through West Indies, and for someone that wants to plant plants in their yard, good ones are uh, bottle brush, fire mm -hmm. spike, firecracker, fire bush, and I happen to enjoy butterf um, butterfly and hummingbird kisses this morning again. Wow. So anyways, uh, and that's with no feeders. All I do is plant natives, and those most of those plants I just rattled off are native plants to Florida, and that, they have the red throat on them or the reddish-orange, which the hummingbirds love. That's great. Well, that's a good morning. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, keep up the good work, and y'all have a great day, and everybody stay safe. All right. Thank, thank you so much you. for your call. Appreciate Bye -bye. it. Thanks. Oh, I am so excited that people are calling in with uh, native plant suggestions for Florida because, you know, I, I know it grows well in the upper Midwest, but not so much down there. Yeah. Sounds no. to me like... No, it's been a fire in the title are good. Right. That's yeah, absolutely. And it's just nice to have that kind of exchange uh, amongst uh, folks who are listening. So that's really great. Speaking of info and tidbits, one of the books you've written is A Thousand and One Secrets Every Birder Should Know. Now, we're not really asking you to reveal anywhere near 900 or more of those secrets. But uh, but maybe if you could give us three or four fundamental pieces of info that every birder, maybe uh, maybe especially an aspiring birder, should know, that would be really cool. Number one, when you go birding and you have a bird you can't identify, it's not going to be the rarest bird ever. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, a lot of people, they start like, ah, you know, it's not in this beginning field guide I have. I clearly have this rarity. And it's like, no, no, it's 99.9% it's, it's .9 of the time it is going to be, be the common bird. Um, the Internet is an amazing, wonderful resource. Uh, there are even groups out there like the American Birding Association has the What's This Bird page where you can post uh, a bird photo and you have to put in the location and the time of year because that is hugely important with identifying birds. And, uh, and their experts will help identify it for you. Um, Cornell Lab of Ornithology has amazing resources too. One of my favorite things they have is their All About Birds page. 
So if you have any kind of question about ruby-throated hummingbirds or robins, you type that in and you get this great overview complete with photos and videos and even what they sound like. Cool. And then I'm going to come back to another question or two, but I'm just going to update us on um, someone who wrote in earlier on the hummingbird topic has now written in on the pelican uh, topic saying the large white uh, quote-unquote North American pelican is what you see in the north. They winter here in Tampa Bay by the hundreds and are much larger than our full-time resident brown pelicans. They often roost on uh, Tarpon Key, just west of the Skyway Causeway. You could get out on a boat and see them today, I'm sure. So I give us more information on our uh, pelican friends. White pelicans during migration are a sight to see because you can just get hundreds of them and they'll get into a thermal, a warm current of air, and they'll they'll circle around in that without flapping. And because of the black and the white on their wings, as they move around, it's almost like watching slow motion fireworks. You know, they almost kind of disappear, and then you see some of the black. Um, they're they're beautiful birds in flight. Oh, that sounds. Oh, <laughs> here's a fun fact: never startle a pelican because they vomit as a defense mechanism. <laughs> oh, really? I have been vomited on by many pelicans in my bird banding. Wow. Now, that's a true uh, important piece of trivia that people can uh, maybe win a bar bet on or something. That's uh... Yeah, yeah. And another thing is pelicans have a parasite inside their mouth called pouch life. And it's only supposed to survive on avian blood, but they will try to survive on mammals. So when a pelican vomits on you... You usually get some pouch life, and boy, howdy, when they bite, can you feel it? <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah, that looks like that could do some serious uh, serious damage. Anyway, uh, okay, so we're sort of nearing the end of our time, Sharon, but a couple other things. So uh, when you mentioned earlier, when we were kind of initially starting to talk, that you were an interpreter for the National Park. Is that kind of all rolled into and the sort of overlapping your work as a park ranger that I mentioned at the introduction or is that as your role kind of evolved essentially or you know it's it, it's a hell of both uh when i when i first started uh when i applied for the park service um i was doing bird surveys full-time around the country and i was writing and i saw a writing job at the park and i applied for that and i didn't get it but i left my resume active in usa job and a couple of months later i got a call from uh, a person saying, hey, we're hiring for seasonal park rangers. Uh, your resume came our way, and you seem like you might be a good fit. Would you like to come in for an interview? And I said, you know, I'm really not looking for full-time work. I said, I'm looking for part-time work or writing contracts. He's like, we have part-time work. And so I started with the park service uh, part-time as a seasonal ranger, just giving programs and working the visitor center. And then uh, a full-time job came available, and I applied for it. And um, I remember my last day of doing bird surveys. I was doing surveys in Texas, and I'm driving down this road. I've had this fantastic day of documenting birds and seeing beautiful things, and I'm thinking, oh, am I making a big mistake by working for the Park Service full-time? You know, this bird survey work is what I love. This is what I truly should be doing. Maybe I, I shouldn't work for the man. And then I saw this gigantic black wasp in my van, and I slammed on the brake. And I opened up the whole van, and I'm like, what the heck is that? And I typed into Google, giant black wasp, and predictive text said, with red wings, I'm like, yes, what is this? And it's something called a tarantula hawk, which, fun fact, has the second most painful sting on the planet. Yeah. And uh, and, and, and it, they fly around and they, they kill tarantulas and take them back to their nest. And I thought, you know, a lot of people don't like tarantulas. 
I don't like a, a wasp that can kill a tarantula. Right. And I took that as the sign that it was time for me to stop doing bird surveys and work for the park service. <laughs> oh, wow. So it took that wasp to sort of persuade you. Uh, it was t- time. That little tarantula hawk, it is gigantic. Yeah. <laughs> You don't want to find that in a van with you when you're going something no. an hour down the highway. <laughs> I would think not, for sure. So, all right, so let's take uh, let's take one more caller. Hi, you're on Talking Animals. We're Sharon Styler, a.k.a. Bird Chick. Hello, it's you. Sounds like you're, you're there, but not quite there. So, Sharon, in our, our waning kind of moments here, um, maybe sort of as an offshoot of my question about some tips from 101 Secrets Every Birder Should Know, um, what does a brand new, in other words, like aspiring birder need to get started? I mean, binoculars, I, I'm guessing, but like how good a pair for a newcomer and what are some other things that somebody who says, you know what, I've been inspired by this conversation. I've been sort of thinking about doing something new and uh, in, in renewed lockdown and I'm going to start birding. So how would they, what's the best way for them to get started? What, what do they need to really get started? Yeah. Well, binoculars are key, and I'm sorry if it's a pair of binoculars that an uncle used in a war that's been in the back of a closet. They're probably not very good. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, you can get some very decent binoculars uh, in the $1 to $200 price range, and they have they have a lifetime warranty. They're waterproof. Um, so you can get some good starter binoculars that way. So a pair of binoculars, okay. I would download the Merlin app. It's free. Okay. I also... Look at getting a basic field guide. Um, you know, if you're east of the Rockies, I'd look at an eastern Sibley or an eastern Kaufman guide to birds. Okay. And then uh, if, you're, if you're engaged in social media, like if you're on Facebook or on Twitter, do searches for the name of your state and birds or birding. And it's a great way to learn when to expect certain species, where to find certain species. Um, and it's also, you can learn some really good identification tips there. But yeah, I mean, if you just have a pair of binoculars and the Merlin app, you're well on your way to uh, becoming a birder. Well, that's great. That's a perfect uh, way to, to, I think, encourage people because it doesn't sound like it's a really big financial commitment at all. And, uh, it can be. We know, but I just mean to get started with just some solid binoculars and, and the Merlin app. I mean, that sounds like you do that for a reasonable sum, especially given the payoff, it sounds like, that uh, that you could expect to have. So, so Sharon, thanks so much for joining us on, on Talking Animals. We've been speaking one more time with Sharon Streitler, uh, Bird Chick. And, again, the website is birdchick.com, and there's really all kinds of great info and blogs and photos and more in there to um, follow up what we did get a chance to talk about today. So thank you so much for joining us on Talking Thanks for Animals. talking about birds. You bet. Thank you. All right. And in a moment, I'll speak with Carol Baskin of Big Cat Rescue about the two wildly disparate things that happened last Thursday, the awful incident that severely injured a longtime volunteer there, and the major progress of Big Cat-related legislation that she's been working on, as have others, for some time now. So more on both of those presently. Right now, we're going to step into the Comedy Corner with Jackie Cation and a piece called New Dog in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. Last Christmas when I was here, I got an opportunity, a golden opportunity to do a town last minute in North Dakota, a very small town in North Dakota. But my brother and sister both live here in Minneapolis, and uh, I'd already promised my brother that I would dog sit for him. So I had to bring the dog with me to North Dakota to the show. And this town was enormously small, and it was small enough that they were excited to see the dog. (laughs) 
That's a new dog. Where'd you get that dog? That's a nice looking dog. What kind of dog is that? Uh, it's a pound dog? I don't know. It's just a dog. And I had the dog with me in the bar where the, where the show was happening, because you could. And the dog is wandering around meeting everybody because it's a dog. And uh, it's a great dog, Sparky the dog. There he is, wandering around. And he licks this guy, he just because he's a dog. And the guy looks at me and he goes, <laughs> he just kissed me. That's a town needs more women. <laughs> or more dogs. Um, here's the weird thing is I love dogs. I've always wanted a dog. I, I think they're great. But the weird thing about L.A., I'm, it's got to be happening here, too. The creepy, I'm going to spend thousands of dollars to keep my animal alive long after the time when the dog should be, wow, new dog. How about that? Uh... <laughs> When I was a kid, when your dog got old and sick, you sadly, sadly put the dog down so that the dog could go away and be happy somewhere else. Uh, now, not, not, no, 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 we're going to keep the dog. We're keeping the dog. In L.A., I swear, some woman paid $3,000, a friend of mine, uh, paid three grand to replace the hip on her dog. You know, 3,000 3, new dogs. How about that? That's $3,000. And it didn't work. So now her dog is still wandering around like Captain Pike on like a little scooter thing, you know? It's just... And if the dog can't run around, it's not like the dog is like Stephen Hawking's, you know? It's not going to write the great American novel. It's not going to happen. It's a dog. It's, I love animals. I genuinely do. It sounds like I'm an ass, but... And I am, I suppose. All right, that was uh, Jackie Cation in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called New Dog, taken from her album Circus People. And, uh, well, that was playing in our instrumental piece, uh, I was trying to reach Carol Baskin, and we did have a confirmed interview and so then i've been checking my messages subsequently to try to get a hold of her or see what the story might be and uh, there's a note here saying sorry but usda just showed up for a surprise inspection and i can't be available for your show so uh apologies from carol baskin and my own apologies we'll um maybe try again at some point soon but um uh, it sounds like once the usda shows up kind of Everything gets set aside for anything else that might have uh, been happening. So I'm Duncan Strauss. You are listening to Talking Animals coming up at 11 on WMNF. It's Rob Lurie with Radioactivity, followed at noon by Midpoint with Nola Lillet. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, followed by... Normally, it would be Scott Elliott, but followed by me, actually. I'm sitting in for Scott today on the All Souls edition of It's the Music at 2 o'clock today. So I'd love to have you. We'll see how, how things go <laughs> based on uh, some of the uh, funky things that have happened in today's show here on Talking Animals. But uh, meanwhile, uh, as the prize for Name That Animal Tune, I'll be offering something from the Talking Animals Vault, a book, a CD, a trinket, to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly answers the question, what is this animal tune? On Talking Animals on WMNF. Like a bird on the wire, like a drunk in a 
midnight choir I have tried in my way to be free like the worm on a hook like a night from some old-fashioned book I have saved all my ribbons for thee If I if I have been unkind I hope that you can just let it go All right, we'll take those guesses off the air when we finish up the show uh, for Name That Animal Tune. Right now, I thought on the fly, given our conversation with Sharon Steitler, Bird Chick, we'd hear a uh, bird-related song from another previous guest, Stephanie Seymour, who uh, put out a great album last year called There Are Birds. And she's an inveterate birder, and uh, I think you'll see a great musician. So let's hear Veery right now from There Are Birds from Stephanie Seymour on Talking Animals on WMF.
Stephanie Seymour with Viri from her great collection, There Are Birds. And we have now just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I invite you to join me next Wednesday when I'll be presenting the annual Talking Animals Christmas Animal Song Special, which may or may not sound redundant in there, but there's a reason for all those words, I believe. You've got to believe me. Anyways, lots of good fun, good music, plus the annual reading of the Dorothy Strauss message. So that's next week on Talking Animals. I invite you to visit our website, TalkingAnimals.net, for audio archives and social media links and all kinds of things that hopefully you'd like to uh, check out and participate in, including subscribing to our newsletter to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand and other news from the Talking Animals world. It's Talking Animals on WMF Tampa. I'm Duncan Strauss. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. Stay tuned for Rob Lorai, NPR News headlines first, and then Rob Lorai after that. Thanks. See you next week.